the axe went wrong a lot more than the sword did. They really had to push this act of attainder through to, to kill her. Henry had said he wanted to torture her to death with his own sword. Hello and welcome to this episode on the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey Rule. In this episode, I'm talking to Gareth Russell, historian and writer, about the downfalls of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, comparing and contrasting the events and learning about each from looking at the other. Gareth is the author of seven books, including the best-selling Young and Damned and Fair, a biography of Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine Howard. He studied history at Oxford and at Queen's University, Belfast, where his postgraduate dissertation was on the Queen's household in the 1540s. He was a contributor to the recent BBC series, The Berlins, A Scandalous Family, and is host of the podcast, Single Malt History. He is currently working on a history of Hampton Court Palace and the people who lived there. Gareth has also delivered talks to my tour groups on Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, and I'm very happy to say will be accompanying me as co-host on my tours. Today, I want to explore with Gareth the similarities and differences in the downfalls of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, the second and fifth wives of Henry VIII, to see what we can learn about each by comparing and contrasting the events leading up to and including their executions. Members of my British History Patreon club were able to ask Gareth their own questions, which I will put to him after the main interview. You can become a patron and access the extended interview at patreon.com forward slash British History, as well as gaining loads of history lover benefits, including putting your own questions to future guests. First of all, I want to welcome Gareth and say a big thank you for joining me today. You've written many fabulous history books, but one in particular is pertinent to our discussion today. Young and Damned and Fair is, in many people's opinion, mine included, the biography of Catherine Howard. Right, so shall we begin by giving some context to what we're going to be talking about today? So in the conveyor belt that is the wives of Henry VIII, where do Anne and Catherine fit? Well, they fit if you ever see sort of the tourist chocolates of the six wives of Henry VIII. They're sold in two rows of three. They're above each other. They are the middle of both rows, number two and five. And in the, the rhyme, a lot of British school, British school children, excuse me, learn um, they are both of the beheadeds. So they, but they also, uh, along with being next to each other in the list of Henry's wives and in tragedy, as a lot of people will know, they're also first cousins. Um, Anne's mother, Elizabeth, was the sister of Catherine's father, Edmund. So they they, they stand close to each other in a lot of ways, uh, but they are separated by quite a considerable gap in their uh, dates of birth. While both are debated, Anne certainly was born at some point in the first decade of the 16th century. Catherine was born at some point, probably towards the earlier uh, part of the first half of the third decade of the of the century. And that's partly because Elizabeth Boleyn married 
a lot younger than her brother Edmund did. Edmund didn't marry until he was in his 40s. So so Anne was born to quite a young set of parents. Catherine was born to an elder set of parents. And so there was quite a, a significant gap. Anne probably wasn't old enough maybe by contemporary standards, potentially actually old enough to be Catherine's mother. So depending obviously on, on what, there's a, there's a wide parameter of date births there, but they were, they were united in, you know, in both being Howard's Anne on her mother's side, Catherine on her father's side. And these were two, you know, this, these were two women tied to an enormously uh, wealthy and influential family Quite interestingly, though, we tend to think of Catherine as the more high-born, but that's uh, if, but Anne was, by contemporary standards, we, we tend to leave out the Irish side of the family, much to my constant irritation. <laughs> um, you know, there's a great deal of talking about the, the Boleyn side, but the Butler side, the, the House of Butler, who were Anne's grandmother, Margaret, was a butler. And really, if you know anything about the, the history of 16th century Ireland, it is hard to imagine a family with more wealth and clout and influence in the Northern European aristocracy. So Anne had two connections, really, to very influential aristocratic families, the Howards on her mother's side and the Butlers on her father's side. Catherine is born, yes, Edmund is a Howard. Her mother is a Culpepper by birth and a Lee by marriage, she's a widow. And these are two sort of like minor gentry families. They're not particularly significant in terms of the aristocracy. So um, they, they have similarities and differences in the aristocratic network that they're born into. So obviously we know they're kinswomen. Actually, I mean, first cousins, uh, with there yeah. being such an age gap, that is really that's hard to remember. So, to, to just think about that, but so there's an age gap. But were there so were, were their upbringing similar or quite different? You know what? what... They were both. Remo- I mean, this is such an interesting moment. We have we have to, particularly with Catherine, step away from a Victorian mindset because really the Victorians, particularly a 19th century historian called Agnes Strickland wrote a a series on the lives of the Queens of England, and she was horrified at this idea that Catherine slept in a dormitory when she was a Duke's granddaughter, and she's surrounded, you know, she's sharing a bed with um, another young woman of the household. And she, Strickland mischaracterizes all these other girls as servants when they're in fact wards. But Mm -hmm. one, I had quite an interesting wake-up call a few years ago when I was talking about Catherine and a friend who... Um, specialized more in social history said that that can't be right and I said <laughs> about all these the beds the testimonies about the beds and I said it's right there was a like a dormitory full of beds for Catherine and the other young girls in the in the Dodger Duchess of um, Norfolk's household and um, and the reason why it was so they thought it was so unusual was beds were so expensive that almost no aristocratic family sprang for them, and um, they were they were they were left in wills and things like that. So the fact that the Dodger Duchess of Norfolk, who Catherine, who became Catherine's guardian really in about 1531, sprang for all these beds indicates actually a very indulgent, privileged household that Catherine was sent to. Like most young young people actually regardless of gender at the time they were sent to you know other households 
to learn manners. It was, it was kind of like boarding school before its day, except that the headmaster or headmistress was a family friend or an elderly relative. The same thing happens to Anne Boleyn, but it's a much more exalted uh, school, for want of a better word. So Catherine is sent sometime around this, the early 1530s to live in the admittedly palatial homes of her um, step-grandmother, the Dodger Duchess of Norfolk. Anne is sent to the Habsburg court as a child and then to the French court. So it's a much more um, high pressure and highly connected version of the same childhood, really, that the that, that other girls, including Catherine, had. But Anne has a, has a very unusually um, privileged, both in terms of comfort, which Catherine's was, and in access to sort of the heart of the great monarchies of Northern Europe, which obviously was unusual by any standards. So certainly there were broad stroke similarities in the kind of households that they spent some of their formative years in. But in terms of in terms of what the actual nature of those households were, Anne certainly had access to a much more prestigious set of childhood and adolescent connections. What sort of age were they when they went off to these? Well, that's sort of the million-dollar question, really, in, um, in, in terms of the debate. Kath, uh, Catherine seems to have been about eight or nine, broadly speaking, um, which was pretty standard. Anne Boleyn's date of birth is obviously such a contested um, period, moment. She could have been eight. She could have been, if you think she was born in 1507, she was uh, six if you think she was born in, say, 1505, 1504, then she was eight or nine. And if you think she was 1501, she was 11 or 12. So there's just, but I mean, broadly speaking, it, it is pre, um, pre, before their teenage years, they're set. Yeah, they're still. And, and, far, and foreign observers, yeah, well, foreign observers thought this was bizarre. It was unusual. It was an, it was a uniquely English custom. Um, and it was considered, foreigners did think it was a bit weird. Foreign visitors to England do remark on it kind of being just, they think it's odd. Really? I didn't realise yeah. that. And, and it's still, by the way, it still mildly survives because a lot of people who, who still go to boarding school would be sent potentially at eight, eight or nine. Yeah, sometimes when a lot of the, the older, more traditional boarding schools um, that have maybe been around for a couple of hundred years, you can start boarding then. Um, so there is that, that system does still have a, a certain residual influence in English culture. Mm, it's interesting, actually. I, th I do think the continent have always had a slightly more familial mm. feel than uh, than we yeah. do here. Um, so, do we start to see personalities of the girls at this age? You know, what do we have about what kind of what kind of where did they start? What kind of women were they? In essence, do you think all of all of the Howard women have this pretty remark. There's a lot that it just seems to run through. I was talking to other people who've written about other members of the family. They all seem to be very charming and confident. There's a certain charisma mm -hmm. that the women of this family have that certainly Anne and Catherine both had. Anne has certain, when I was researching for another talk, I gave on the history of the Butler family. It is remarkable, actually, when you go back how much of Anne's personality is so similar to a lot of the Butler side of the family, uh, this sort of like Olympic gold medal 
capacity for holding a grudge. <laughs> um, he's certainly something Anne gets, which Catherine does not have. It has to be said, Catherine can be sharp in the way Anne is. She, you know, both of them are are very good at setting boundaries in terms of what they think is respectful. They don't like being talked down to. They don't like being belittled. And they are very quick to make sure that people know that. That's probably the trait, one of the traits I like the most in both of them. But Catherine, while she can be firm, even sometimes quite cutting, when she, I mean, there's incidents with some of her servants when she's queen that isn't, doesn't show her in a great light. But what I would, but Catherine gets over a grudge quickly, whereas Anne less so. <laughs> um, so, but they, but they both, they also both, you know, you have to, we have this idea when we only think of Tudor society as existing, you know, with, with these, um, the, these famous people we know, we tend not to remember that they are all one percenters to use a modern kind of uh, nomenclature there because. Mm. Catherine and Anne both have a tendency to kind of throw money at the problem. And what I mean by that is they both have a tendency to give gifts to people who, um, or to, to hold out off offers of favour in terms of political or social advancement if the person will kind of fall in line. So in that sense, you do see them as being products of a, of, of, you know, of elite families mm. and of a world that, you know, had trained them to behave that way. And, and you know, society did function that way. You have to judge people by their own contemporary standards. So I think um, there, are, there are similarities in terms of charm, charisma, and sense of self-worth and a certain, a certain, strength of character that they both have. Anne, I would argue, was not just better educated. I think she probably was more naturally intelligent. Um, again, the butlers were historically interested in the arts, particularly in patronage of literature. So she has a difference, you know, and, and Anne grew up her butler grandmother, Margaret Boleyn, was really around for most of Anne's. In fact, she actually outlived Anne. So she had that, that exposure growing up in a way that Catherine didn't. Neither the Lees, Culpeppers, or actually the Howards were particularly interested in the arts. So Anne has a certain um, more by contemporary standards, refined and distilled interest in the arts. And she does seem to have been more intelligent than Catherine in terms of intellect and, th and those kind of things. Interesting. So I want to move on to Anne first. Yeah. So summer of 1535 and Anne and Henry are enjoying their extended summer progress in Gloucestershire and, uh, and Wiltshire and, and, and so on. They were feasting, they were hunting, generally having a fantastic time. But by May, the next year, Anne was dead. Mm. Now, where was the turning point in Anne's story? See, I, I mean, I'm, I sort of am a slight outlier on this in that I, I've always felt that, or sorry, I felt that always within their relationship, there was the capacity for it to end this way. I don't, by this idea that yeah, it was, I mean, I have to say there are moments where I'm sort of, 
I feel like I've missed something. Like I've, I've clear when people are saying, you know, it's, a, it's, it's one of history's great love affairs. I'm like, is it mm-hmm. in the way Titanic was like one of the great holidays? It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just a very odd way to spin this. And mm-hmm. I, I do think I personally don't buy that it was love in the way that we would understand it. And so to me, I think if you look at some of his, his early, love letters from the 1520s when this was all starting out i think if you read them it, it was there the the the, the danger the danger mm. she stood in was there it, they are very cloying they are very mercurial from he, from henry i love you so much why aren't you paying enough attention i hate myself when you don't pay me enough attention you know you promised you would come and then you changed your mind there's a lot of um uh, theatrical flamboyant self-loathing in it. He seems to hate himself for being this depend for allowing his mood to be dependent on her responses. And so I think the the relationship for, from him was always one of, of obsession with her. I mm-hmm. think he was sort of dazzled by her and um to that in that kind of relationship there is poison there is inherent poison there sounds like he was blaming her from the beginning at how he feeling as well philip i kind of do lean that way and i'm you know you have to there's obviously the goldwater standard you can't psychologically analyze people you don't meet and i i try you know certainly there to me there are certain things that henry does that I mean, scream narcissism, these kind of narcissistic rage attacks. And I mean, not just scream, like a full Broadway musical number called narcissism. Um, But, um, and this element to destroy what you're done Mm. with, that Mm. kind of narcissistic rage attack. But I I understand absolutely that we do have to be careful with with going too far and building too much on, on, on that speculation. But I do think those aren't, there's something so unsettling about the dynamic between them from the start. There really is. And so I, I think there, there was an element that was really unstable and dangerous for her, probably from the get-go. Mm. What, 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 what other options did she have, really? I mean, she... Do you think she recognised that? I want... I. I think her reluctance when it started out was a lot more sincere. And the reason why I say that is we are so spoiled and addled by modern transport that we think Hever is close to London. Mm-hmm. And actually when she moved to Hever away from the court, it was not like 90 minutes on the train. It was a full day, maybe a day and a half's journey. It was not going to be easy for him to pursue her there. So actually when she moved away to get away from his attention, I think you have to assume that at least initially she was not keen on this. Um, but, but you know, obviously I think that changed. Certainly she she does seem to have completely accepted that this there's a lot there's a i think it's an italian diplomat yeah he's venetian and he said that he was in really struck by at this is the early 1530s before she was married by how complete and total anne's conviction was that god had picked her and that all of this was god's will that she would be queen 
So I think we have to also factor in the intensity of this is a providentialist society, a very pious society. And when you merge those, it's not surprising she ended up, she, she thought that. But what in terms of the short term accelerated it? I, I think I think he could be very inconsistent. She's not the only person who has a moment where everything seems fine. You know, it happens with Cromwell, mm. Thomas Cromwell later, where where all you know he's given the Earldom of Essex only a few weeks before his downfall begins. So that's particularly um, interesting in light of, as you say, this very happy tour of Gloucestershire and Wiltshire. Mm. I do think something. I do think the, the miscarriage of January 1536, I think in terms of, I know that some people think it's a more traditional narrative, but sometimes the traditional narratives are closer than we give them credit for. And I do think something snapped in him in, in early 1536. To me, the argument, I, by the way, should also point out, I do not believe in any way, shape or form that Henry believed she was guilty. Mm. And... But I think he he believed she deserved to die, which is not the same thing. So I think to sort of swing back to the narcissism point, sometimes you you know people think I know this person deserves something terrible to, in Henry's case that she deserves to die, um, and he didn't really okay she didn't do what we're accusing her of, but she still deserves it. Like I think there is an element that sort of explains. Um, because, I mean, if it's obvious to us she didn't do it, there's no way Henry VIII's stupid enough to think it actually happened. Mm. Um, and I say this as someone who really has to struggle to find a single good thing to say about his political capabilities, and yet even I do not think that he could have fallen for it. So I don't buy the narrative that it was really short-term, that, that everything was fine up until, say, Easter 1536. I think things have been brewing long-term from the beginning of their relationship. I think these started to dial up with Elizabeth's gender. I do think the miscarriage of 1534 and again of 1536 all starts to collide. Her quarrel with Cromwell happens at the same time. Jane Seymour's ascent begins at the same time. It's a cocktail of things, but I think she was, I think from the, from pretty much the end of January, 1536 to me, um, I, I think I think that she hadn't realized yet, but she lost the game. That was it. Hmm. So before we get too much into the events that led to Anne's execution and down well, downfall and execution, can we outline those surrounding um Catherine first? So what what's sure. the first thing we see that indicates that it's all going wrong for Catherine and and in Henry and Henry and their relationship? Well, this is one of those moments or one of those discussions and why I think this is a, was a, such an interesting topic to pick because even here there's a contrast between the two of them. I, you asked me when, and I was like, oh, well, here and here and here and here with Anne. With, with uh, Catherine, it's the 2nd of November, 1541. That's the moment. Um, it's the Feast of All Souls and Catherine and Henry have just returned from a lengthy tour that took up most of the summer, all of the summer, and a fair bit of the autumn into the northern counties. They returned to the south there at Hampton Court Palace, and it was fairly traditional that, that documents, petitions, etc., would be left for the king to collect from his pew at, at Mass. 
and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, who'd been left behind in, in the South during the tour, as a sort of caretaker government for the Southern um, Shires, he, during that time, had been contacted by an evangelical pastor called John Lassels, whose sister Mary had formerly been a servant to Catherine's family. She had started out uh, at the same time Catherine lived in the care of the Dodger Duchess of Norfolk. Agnes had been a nursery maid to Catherine's cousin, Agnes. She um, and she was part of a family that um, had supported the Reformation. Uh, but John Lassell said to her, look, you know, you knew her vaguely, not very well. There was quite a difference in rank between them. But she did know um, she, she knew Catherine better than Catherine knew her. Um, sort of that concept of hierarchy again. But mm. but John said, you know, she's queen. You know, basically, why don't you go and get a place in her service now that she's queen? That would be advantageous to us. And Mary essentially said to him that she was that Catherine's morals were so poor that there's no way that she would ever go to work for a woman like her. John Lassels presses her and says, "Why are you saying this?" And Mary reveals that around the time that she joined um, the service of Catherine's family. So I was, for the book, able to piece together that that would have been after her previous employment, her previous employer's mission. So basically, she arrived in about the spring of 1538. And Mary relates how, at that point, Catherine had had started, had well, this affair was developing, um, a liaison with her music teacher, who was more on Mary's level in sort of the hierarchy of, of servants, a man called Henry Mannix. He turns up in records sometimes as young Mannock, um, and this, or, but it seems generally to have been Mannix. 16th century spellings flit around quite a bit. But um, Mary found out that some of her, some other servants were carrying notes between Mannix and Catherine. She said to him, you know, if anything happens between you and her, that her family will kill you. But Mannix reveals that, um, that there has been some physical intimacy between them and that Catherine has promised that they will sleep together at some stage. Mary then tells people this. Catherine hears that Mannix has boasted. She then um, goes for a walk with them in the orchard and says, "Nope, that was not. I'm not pleased that this is being discussed. I don't want. I want. Don't want anything more to do with you." She then has a relationship with someone who is higher, much higher than Mary, and closer to Catherine's level in the hierarchy. Uh, a man called Francis Derham, who's also a ward in the household and who is the son of a wealthy Lincolnshire gentry family, and that there was talk of them being, of them maybe marrying at one stage. Now, Mary relates all of this to her brother, and in particular, it's the mention that Catherine and Francis Durham had considered getting married, because under 16th century canon law, if they had made that promise, and there had been... Um, they, they had consummated the relationship. Technically, the church would regard both of them as Ill, as ineligible to marry anyone else again. So the the legal conundrum is that if Mary is telling her brother the truth, Catherine might not legally be entitled to be the king's wife. So Lassels, although I would argue Lassels, because bear in mind he's a 
evangelical pastor. Lassels to me is more concerned with what he sees as the morality aspect because actually there's no reason to, to divulge the Mannix element. It doesn't have a legal component in terms of her position to be queen. But he goes to the Archbishop of Cranmer and says, this is what my sister has told me. And Henry VIII had really tightened the treason laws to something in which if you knew someone had done something that might potentially be treason or harm um, the king and you didn't tell inform the government, you were guilty with them. So this really puts um, Cranmer and the archbishop in an awkward position, to put it mildly. And he's so afraid of what Henry's reaction will be that he can't bring himself to say it um, in person. So in, you know, uh, in the in the time honored, he's sort of the equivalent of, you know, he kind of texts to him. He, he, he can't, he, you know, he writes the letter. He writes all of this in the letter and he leaves it for Henry to read. Uh, and on the 2nd of November, Henry reads it and he brings a very small group of his most trusted advisors to his room and he, and he orders them to investigate what this pastor, this preacher has told the archbishop. And so some of them go to find Mannix, who is at this point um, still working as a music teacher in, um, and a musician in Lambeth. They find out that Francis is now working for Queen Catherine as a gentleman usher. So they bring him in for questioning. And they, one of them, was a few of them headed by the Earl of Southampton, they go on a hunting trip and stop conveniently at Mary Lassell's home and ask, can they have some refreshments? By the way, we heard what you said to your brother, fill us in, and Mary, and so they keep all these testimonies separate. There's no chance they're influencing each other, and they all more or less confirm the same thing. They then go to Henry, and that is that's, that starts this full investigation into her and into the Queen's private life, her detention in her apartments, then her removal to house arrest away from court. But the, but the moment, the, that moment is the 2nd of November, 1541. So already quite a telling difference between the two totally. experiences. Totally. Which I'm sure we will, we will definitely come back to and look into more in, in a short while. I just want to look at Henry's behaviour then here. So mm. how, how is he reacting to supposed reports of Anne's misbehaviour? And then how does he react to Catherine's? So there is one alleged report of him crying about Anne. Uh, well, his illegitimate son, the Duke of uh, Richmond, comes to see him and Henry allegedly bursts into tears and says, you know, I'm so glad that you and your sister, Mary, weren't poisoned by her, which interestingly is not one of the charges brought against her. Um, so that is mm -hmm. one outlier. Um, if, I'm not sure I believe that, but if he cried, it was not for long. Um, he is seen... And, and he's seen by many people, including people in London, who start defending Anne and writing ballads in her defence, because it doesn't exactly scream uh, grieving 
wounded husband when you're seen sailing up and down the Thames on your barge, having banquets on board and playing music while your wife's in prison, which Henry does. There's also, we, it, the document is lost, but the Bishop of Carlisle has a, a supremely awkward moment where Henry, bear in mind, Anne has not been arrested for that long. Henry shows the Archbishop of Carlisle a full play that Henry has written about Anne's um, sexual misdeeds and 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 <laughs> the bishop just does not know what to say. Who would? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Henry has, Henry's taken time off from grieving to um, write a play a about play. it. Yeah. Yeah. To write a play about it in a suspiciously short period of time. And uh, he, he also, I mean, really revealingly, uh, Mary is, engaged a day after she's executed and married by the end of the month the same month which does not happen with Catherine he stay he stays unmarried now in tra- he he grieves for about th- he doesn't get married again for until the next year but he he grieves really quite intensely with with Catherine there's you know there's he's screaming at one point that he wants a sword he's going to torture her to death himself that he wants to see her die that he you know he he, and he also intervenes you know he authorizes torture to be used against Francis Derham repeatedly to get more testimonies out of him that they don't really legally need. There's the suggestion, at least in court gossip, that he sanctioned torture against one of Durham's friends, a man called Robert Damport. The legend is by having his teeth pulled out one by one. Um, although that's unverifiable, but there's certainly, there's, you know, he, his reaction between Anne and Catherine is night and day. They are mm. so dissimilar to each other. And the, to me, the most revealing remark is he uses Anne to bully Jane Seymour. When Jane puts forward a political opinion in 1536, Henry says to her, you know, remember what happened to the last queen who interfered in Paul, who meddled in affairs of state. You don't say that if you think the crimes were adultery and incest. You don't say by the way, be careful because remember what happened to her. You, he, in that moment, revealed that he knew she hadn't done it. So he, he, he knew Anne was innocent. I think he, he had a, this extraordinary sense of self righteousness and certainty. So I think he, he fully believed she deserved to die because she disappointed him. But there is absolutely no way that you could convince me that someone like Henry VIII, who had grown up in the Tudor court his entire life, uh, and who was intimately aware of its structures because he was the king could possibly have believed that those um, that that the alleged adulteries with Anne Boleyn had happened. If we can figure it out, he certainly could figure it out. Mm. If we can, if we can remember things, you know, if we can remember, if we can spot, the, she wasn't at Windsor when she was supposed to be plotting his murder. Surely he would remember. It's just it, there's there's no um, there's no comparison between the reaction to Anne's fall in 1536 and Catherine's in 1541. They are completely different, and in their difference lies the detail to your answer, which is that these are two very different downfalls. Mm. Yes, interesting. Now the queens didn't 
fall from grace in isolation. No. Um, there were others obviously caught up and executed both in 1536 and, and, um, and, and with, with Catherine in, in 1540, is she, is she executed early for, for 1542? Yeah, it's actually rocking up. I just realized I'm going to have to do a podcast. Yeah, you're going to have to do a <laughs> she, um, She's executed on the 13th of February, 1542. So, but they're not, they're, they're not the only ones executed. So who else, no. who else is involved? Who else is well, accused alongside them? In Anne's case, there are seven. There are actually seven men. Two men are released, um, including the famous poet, mm. uh, Thomas Wyatt. Although, interestingly, Wyatt is told at the time of his arrest, don't worry, you'll be fine, by Thomas Cromwell. So essentially, they took it, they cleverly took in two that they knew they were going to release just to make it look like there was, that the other five, therefore, were guilty. Um, it's a very, it's a shrewd, horrible move. Yeah. She's, of course, very infamously accused of incest with her brother, George, Lord Rochford. Her other alleged lovers are Henry Norris, who is Henry VIII's confidant, a very well-liked courtier, but with pretty significant influence. Also long-standing uh, ties to the Boleyn, to, to sort of being quite sympathetic to Anne. There is Francis Weston, who's a sort of dashing, athletic uh, playboy type he's married that has not stopped there he does seem to have been um i don't think the wedding ring weighed francis weston down although <laughs> to put it mildly although not not with queen anne there was william brereton who everyone's assault was with this ludicrous choice because william brereton was um uh he, he's not what you would call a traditionally romantic figure. No one can understand how on earth he was accused in the lists, but he was Thomas Cromwell's, um, he, was a, he was a major rival to Thomas Cromwell and a thorn in Cromwell's side, so two birds with one stone. Mm -hmm. And then Mark Smeaton, who is the only one born outside the upper classes, could be tortured and was a palace servant musician. So uh, he confesses, they need a confession. So they get one out of Smeaton and the, the contemporary rumour that a courtier called George Constantine reports is that he had been quote grievously racked to get it and I see no reason to, to disbelieve that the five men are beheaded on the 17th of May 1536 Anne is beheaded on the 19th of May so it's a two day gap it's, it's quickly done Catherine's alleged former fiance Francis Durham is hang drawn and quartered which is the truly hideous death mm. in early december 1541 on the 10th of december and thomas culpepper again one of henry viet's favorites with whom catherine had written a love letter and had had several meetings at night after she married into the royal family is condemned to death on the same day he's beheaded um so they both die in december catherine is beheaded as I've said, on the 13th of February, and so is one of her ladies-in-waiting, um, Lady Rochford, technically Jane Boleyn, Dodger Viscountess Rochford, is beheaded for abetting the Queen's meetings, which is interesting because for Anne to have done what she allegedly did, there would have had to have been a, a couple um, or one or very well-organised <laughs> lady-in-waiting mm. who could help her you know, meet these men or smuggle these men in. 
And there, there is no attempt to prosecute any of the ladies in waiting. In fact, we know from a courtier called Sir Edward Bainton that they tried to get some of Anne's maids and ladies in waiting to provide false testimony against her, and they wouldn't do it. So Lady Rochford had helped set up and liaise the meetings between Queen Catherine and Thomas Culpepper. So she was um, beheaded for complicity in treason. So again, more telling signs. Well, it? yeah, well, of course, you need a, you need a lady in wedding to have helped you do this. And the fact that there's none says a lot. So what was the legal basis on which each queen was accused and convicted? What were they actually yeah. accused and convicted of? Well, this is, this is the really interesting thing. So to sort of start in reverse, one of them, the, and I, I mean, I was, well, I have to catch myself because sometimes you feel the, you feel the sentence forming. Um, she was not condemned for adultery. That is not why Catherine was executed, because that was not, at that point, a crime. There was legislation from the reign of King Edward III that had criminalised intercourse with a Princess of Wales or a Queen of England, because that could endanger the line of succession. But if you look at the language, it only criminalises it on behalf of the men doing it. And it's very strongly, it looks like it's referring to, I mean, it refers to like violation. So it doesn't look like it's talking about um, what we would categorize, and they would have as well, sorry, as consensual adultery. Mm. Catherine is condemned and it is made very clear in the legislation in parliament and in the testimony of councillors afterwards, everything is consistent on this. It is the intention to commit adultery. I've talked about the treason laws being expanded. That's what, that's what Catherine is. That is the net that catches her. Essentially, they argue your meetings with Thomas Culpepper late at night, including, you know, in her, in her lavatory, well, um, stool, loo, bathroom in the middle of the night, they say that does not suggest pure intent and your meetings and your gifts and the fact that the meetings were secret and at night suggest that you both intended at one point to commit adultery and to tamper with the succession. Mm. So that, but there is real legal doubt right up until the last minute. If that carries the death penalty. And in fact, looking at the laws in the 1540s, they didn't. What she had done had not um, constituted it, constituted a capital crime, a death penalty offence. And actually, there were members of the House of Lords who were very keen to say, we do not condone her behaviour, but mm. they were not in any way comfortable with, with the, the, the legality, the quasi-legality so eventually what they did was they got her on an, they got an, her on an act of attainder and essentially they they fudged they they threw everything together and henry had the right under the treason laws to sign this or to have his signature affixed to it and so she she kind of was gotten on this melange of crimes but they they really had to push this act of attainder through to to kill her when it was not seen by most people up until the last minute, that as the logical conclusion for what should happen to her, I think most people thought she'd be sort of rusticated, uh, either into permanent house arrest or, or shipped off to the countryside. Mm. With Anne, the same thing stands with the adultery. It's really important. The adultery 
the, the sexual crime element of Anne is much more clearly expressed, even though there was ironically less evidence. You have to understand the adultery, the multiple adultery, the, the, the heavy sexual component to both Queen's downfall. That is a that is still used today. If you can throw sex into a scandal, you will both titillate and horrify enough people to get them to 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 go along with your agenda. If you you know that is true throughout history. Mm-hmm. But the adultery, let's say, let's say for the sake of argument, Anne did it. Let's say Anne did sleep with Henry Norris, William Brereton, and Francis Weston and Mark Smeaton. That is that is not a death penalty offense. She actually can just be stripped of her titles and set and um there were still convents then. She could have been shipped off to a convent and left there. The two crimes that she allegedly commits that mandate the death penalty are firstly the incest with Lord Rochford. An incest is a death penalty offence. The second, and it never gets talked about today because we there's this debate over the adultery, is a very a minority of historians, maybe the adultery. No one ever talks about the equally like absurd component to this, which is that they, they also allege that she plotted to have Henry killed and that what, that she hosted this sort of murder conference in her rooms at Greenwich when actually on the entire week if it happened, she was miles away at Windsor. But she has this sort of assassination convention in her apartments at Greenwich where her Norris Rochford Weston and Burton, not speaking, plot to kill the king. And once he's dead, she'll marry one of her paramours and rule as regent. The idea that Anne, with a two-year-old daughter and an unborn child, would have risked losing the having to take over the government from the king is, I mean, insane. Hmm. And there is no way Henry believed it. There's no way anyone really believed it at the time. It's not discussed in the sources in the way the adultery is. The adultery is to destroy her reputation and to and also to potentially get rid of some of the men who might support her politically. The adultery annihilates her reputation. It's the treason and the incest, particularly the treason that is put in to make sure she is executed. Yeah. Wow. So it's it, it's, it's it's horrible. It, well, there's such this the element of planning involved. Yeah, is is is, yeah. is, is uh, and that's that's really telling difference then, isn't it, between Anne and and and, and Catherine? Yeah. The the yeah, just the 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 reactionary events to Catherine, right? And this contrived plan. You know, arresting two more people than you're actually going yeah. to hold so that you can say, no, look, obviously due process has been done because two of them we found weren't go. involved and we let them go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cromwell's yeah. involved with Anne. He's clever. Cromwell's dead by the time Catherine falls. But I mean, I make a, I'm, I really, I, I kept wondering, was I overagging my point in Young and Damned and Fair? But I, I do actually stand by it. I do think you it's henry it is henry's hand that pushes this and pushes this and seeing the journal of the house of lords where they're sort of saying oh i'm not sure about about if this is death penalty worthy mm. and even Chapoy and everyone thinking right up to the you know the emperor referring to it as a divorce right up until the last you know few weeks it um it is his hand it is it is a it is his vengeful hand that wants catherine 
dead. And I, you know, a lot of people say, um, really kind of identify Cromwell as the reason Anne, Anne ends up dead. But Catherine, there was there was as many opportunities more to let Catherine go and she still ends up dead. Mm. The common denominator is not Cromwell. The common denominator is Henry. Yeah. And yeah, that you had talked about the narcissism and wanted to destroy yeah. that which you have yeah. done with. It yeah. runs through. To me, that's what stands out. To me, that seems mm. like, and, and certainly I had, you know, the most sort of, I, I don't know if I sort of call it a fireside and whiskey chat or a fireside and Guinness chat, but I have a, a, a friend who's a brilliant um, psychiatrist and and I spent so long talking, you know, I said, I told him all the, 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 the what happened in 1536 and 1541. He said, like, he's not, he's not a historian. I mean, he said, he's a Mrs like fireworks display narcissism <laughs> but um yeah i think I, I to me that all that behavior does absolutely track it's fascinating well finally um before we come on to the questions that my patrons of the british history uh, patreon club have asked i want to ask you about their the final moments of both women and mm. the differences in the treatment of them that we see now famously uh, anne was beheaded kneeling up so she wasn't prostrate yeah. prostate always get that wrong on the block by the calais swordsman um catherine was killed by the axe on mm. on the block why was there the difference and actually this this is a question i've pulled out of my patrons question because joanne asked it um and it's pertinent to, to what i wanted to know and um she phrased it this way why was Anne executed by a French swordsman, but Catherine Howard was not given that same honourable method? Well, Joanne, great question. The honest answer is I don't know, or I don't know in, pre in precise detail why. We, we don't know. There are different theories. Uh, Leander Delisle has a really interesting theory that I think she uh, put an article for The Spectator in 2013 where she says Anne's sword death really conjures up this like, Guinevere and Camelot-esque story that Henry was so keen to 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 cast himself in the role of King Arthur. Mm. Some people have said that you know Cromwell might you know Cromwell was more organised, was a real details man, and Cromwell was around to to have the swordsman pre-ordered before the trial. Um, which just screams justice. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but Cromwell had you know maybe Cromwell had you know ordered the swordsman and then there wasn't someone around to do that for Catherine there's obviously I mean, that's a good theory. point though isn't it the the, yeah. the timings for the swordsman to have got oh yeah to, the swordsman has to have been to England on the 19th of May he has to have been called for before the trial um, totally totally there's absolutely no way that he could have made it to London unless he had been I mean we're looking at I mean, good, no, there's no, if you look at any comparable journey, unless he had, in fact, no, it's impossible. He has to have been called for the 15th. Um, with, there's obviously, again, Joanne, obviously the, the theory, a long-standing theory that can't be dismissed or proved one way or the other, which is that Anne had been brought up quite, most of her education had passed in France. Catherine's hadn't, was, was that why? I don't know because it, my gut is 
that it, it, as much as loath as I, I'm not a, a massive Cromwell sympathizer, although I have a, some people who I hugely respect are, I'm sort of slightly loath to say this, but I think the my gut would be maybe it is the, the difference is Cromwell, you know, not being there. And the other thing is that Henry takes the, the logistics of the execution. Actually, now that I say this, it could be seasonal. This is going to sound ridiculous, but it would be t- it would be more difficult to get someone over in mm-hmm. winter than it would be in summer. You have to, I mean, that's another, th- I mean, I know we, we are aware of the power of nature and, and the weather, but we, we, ha- we are not as openly dependent on it as they were. I mean, this is a really seasonal based society. Mm. So potentially getting someone over in February would be a lot harder than it is in May. I think it's probably a cocktail of, of reasons. My, There's also, and this is purely, again, speculative. I hope, by the way, just take all of these as, as, a, as equally viable because we don't know. There, is not, there isn't a set answer. But I've sometimes wondered, was there slightly more respect for Anne? You've said, I mean, as Joanne, you said a more honourable method. And mm-hmm. I think you're on to something there. Was there slightly more respect? To give, I mean, to give Thomas Cromwell credit where credit is due, he did actually speak very respectfully about Anne after the execution. He, in conversation with the Habsburg ambassador, used to Chapuis, you know, he praises Anne's personality, intellect, particularly her courage. So I wonder, was that part of it? I think mm. probably there are multiple different reasons, but... Mm. Um, it is an interesting point because, of course, a century yeah. later, when we see Charles I executed, they mm-hmm. purposely use a short block that is part of a right. humiliation yeah. um, rather than the taller block, which would have left him kneeling. Um, yeah, so they it's make a really him interesting lively. point. I think so. I can't, by the way, again, this is one of those moments where you see sort of like the Lady of Shalott's mirror, isn't it? You sort of see the, the shadows darkly. You can't pinpoint with a lot of this stuff what it is. But there is, if not a paper trail, there is an, a trail of unanswered questions that give that can sometimes get you close to an answer. Um, certainly, Catherine is sufficiently nervous about it that she asks for the famously asks for the block to rehearse her own execution. Mm. And understandably, you have to remember Catherine was queen when the Countess of Salisbury's execution with the axe had gone very badly indeed. She'd basically been hacked apart. Um, Cromwell's execution had not gone smoothly either. So I do think actually Catherine was a lot more nervous, along with the honourable element of it, which is completely correct. There is also the practicality of it, which is that the axe went wrong a lot more than the sword did. Um, So I would like to think that wasn't a factor in why it was picked for Catherine, but you don't know. Mm. Uh, Henry had said he wanted to torture her to to death with his own sword, months earlier so i i don't know but i i I think there's probably all these reasons woven together well it's a brilliant last question to end the main part of the interview on so um so before we um move on to the patreon questions we will say goodbye to everyone else listening and thank you very much for watching so before we move on thank you gareth for for answering all of those questions and and it's it's a it's 
I'm really glad we did this because I think it's a really good way of understanding it by looking at the other, what happened to the other woman, mm. understanding each of their experiences and, and this story. I think so. I mean, it's such, it's, uh, the answers come through the differences, I think. But um, I'd just like to thank everyone as well for listening to me and for, um, and for this topic of conversation because it is it's so fascinating so I've, I've very much enjoyed my time thank you thank you now if you want to find more of gareth you can find his books on my amazon shop which is amazon.co.uk forward slash shop forward slash british history he's also the writer and host of his own podcast called single malt history which is on all podcast platforms and he's on instagram at underscore Gareth Russell. What did you think of our discussion today? Did you learn anything new? Or did it make you question something you thought you understood? Or do you just disagree with some of the points? We'd really like to hear from you and know what you thought. But for now, thank you for tuning in and I hope to see you again really soon. Bye.